everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Connecticut Certification Board's podcast, Scope of Practice, where we strive to address topics often overlooked, underappreciated, or just not widely known by SUD professionals. If you are returning to the podcast, welcome back. If you are a first-time listener, we hope you continue to join us. As we near the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, we have a tremendous growth in technology-based interventions, be they interventions that are web-based or perhaps text-based, smartphone apps, online forums, and even social media, uh, social media sites. Technology is advancing rapidly, and expansion of these interventions for individuals with substance use disorders will continue to move forward. As with any other field uh, where change is involved, this is a double-edged sword. There are interventions that are built upon the expertise of, of those both in the disorder and technology, but others from strictly commercial-driven organizations that only claim the medical and cl- clinical expertise while offering unsubstantiated claims of product efficacy. In August 2021, I was in- introduced to the co-founders of RAE Health, which stands for Realize, Analyze, and Engage, who had proposed some research into wearable technology that would detect, identify, and track patterns of cravings, stress, and drug use. I had the opportunity to write a letter of support for the organization as they sought grant funding through the National Institutes of Health to proceed. They received the funding and were able to move forward with development and testing. Joining us today to talk about this technology is Dr. Stephanie Carrero, the chief researcher on the project. Dr. Carrero is an emergency physician and medical toxicologist She also serves as an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Over the last six years, she has focused her clinical research in the substance use disorder space with a particular focus on the current opioid opioid epidemic and is collaborating with RAE since 2015. Her work on the RAE project builds logically on her prior accomplishments to focus on drug craving and stress in a population high at risk for relapse. We welcome her to the program. Dr. Guerrero, very glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Just to begin, can you kind of give us a brief snapshot of the app? Sure. Um, so the Ray app is actually one part of an integrated uh, digital health system or personal digital health system that includes a wearable sensor that is um, similar to a smartwatch. Um, it also ha- includes the app itself. And then there's a cloud-based server and a clinician portal that uh, all the information that's obtained filters back to. So the app itself um, is in constant connection with the wearable sensor. Um, and through a Bluetooth connection, the app receives physiologic data from the sensor. So this is data like um, how much the user is moving and in what directions and how fast um, the temperature of their skin, the uh, electrical activity at the surface of the skin, their heart rate, their heart rate variability, et cetera. And all that data is being streamed continuously back to the app. Um, And on the app is a patented algorithm that uses that data to identify digital biomarkers of stress uh, and and drug craving. And once the app detects uh, either of those events using the algorithm, the um, user gets a notification. And when they receive the notification, they're asked to acknowledge whether this is actually uh, occurring. And then they're asked to just rate the event on a visual analog scale, so one to five. Um, And then they also have the opportunity to further engage with Ray 
if they want to at that point, they can provide some contextual data, you know, the who, what, when, where, and why of what's going on in the moment. They can do some journaling, they can do some mindful breathing exercises, or they can decide that, you know, they don't have, they, that that's not the time and they, they're allowed to uh, to push those those activities back if they'd like. And now all that data is aggregated in the app and it's available to them via um, some in-app uh, graphical analytics so they can understand over time um, how these events are happening and, and what their relationship is. And then it's also pushed into the portal and it's available to a treatment provider of their choice, uh, of course, assuming they get permission to do that. Um, and the goal is to uh, both give them an opportunity in real time to de-escalate. So this is what we call a just-in-time and just-in-space intervention, right? When and where they need it most. Um, but also to provide some data so that they can retrospectively, really easy and in, in uh, easy to look at way, um, understand patterns, right? And the people, places, and things that are serving as triggers and understand um, and serve as a springboard for them and their treatment provider to, to, to find ways that they can make change. So the level of engagement uh, at, in the moment really depends on the person wearing the device and and they get to do what they wish with the feedback uh, as they get it. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, recognizing the app receives information from a wearable device. Um, is it a standalone device or are there some partnerships or affiliations with existing technologies or products? Great question. So when we uh, did our initial validation studies with the algorithms were um, – created. We used research-grade devices, but based on user feedback, we realized that these uh, didn't really meet the needs of the, the population that we wish to serve. So the current device that um, that uh, connects to Ray is, a, is an off-the-shelf sensor that you can buy on, um, you know, on, on Amazon or at the store. It's a Garmin Vivo Smart 4. Um, it has all of the um, capabilities and then the aesthetic, the look of a, a you know, typical smartwatch, right? It can track your steps and, and you know, the those sort of things for you um, so that it's not identifiable as a medical device or something that's associated with treatment. It's very discreet and comfortable, easy to wear. Um, and that's been a wonderful um, uh, partnership with Garmin. We're currently working to translate the algorithm so that it can be used on a variety of popular devices, such as the Apple Watch, you know, based on our, our, um, our uh, target user's request. And the goal is in the next one to two years to, for Ray to really be device agnostic so that people can use it with the, the smartwatch of their choice. And I think uh, like you mentioned, it's just a regular wearable device. One of the things that always concerns me uh, in thing, uh, as we look at individuals with substance disorders is a stigma and mm -hmm. how do we avoid creating more stigma or more discrimination against these folks. Um, and I think that not having some unwieldy, odd-looking device on their arm uh, is certainly helpful. So it, uh, thank you for sharing that with us because I think that's important for people to know um, that it's just another wearable device uh, currently available through Garmin. Um, and just so we can get all of our listeners listeners on the same page, and I'm kind of nerdy, so I, uh, this this question isn't really for me. It's can you define uh, what a biomarker is? We are measuring biomarkers. Yeah, so in the really traditional sense, a biomarker is a measurable substance, like classically we think about maybe something in the blood that you can sample, right? Um, that when you find it in a person, it indicates some phenomenon of interest. So it could be a disease, an infection, environmental exposure, et cetera. Um, the term digital biomarkers is a little bit newer. 
Um, and it reflects um, similar markers, except instead of something that you sample from the blood, uh, it's com com uh, comprised of physiologic and behavioral data that you collect through digital devices. So these might be wearable sensors like I'm using. They could be um, contactless sensors in the environment. They could be ingestible sensors that you swallow or things that are implanted. But essentially, the data all comes from a digital device. And it's all generated by an end user, right? A person who the is the subject of the, the sensor's sensing. Um, and it, it all is objective, right? Um, and so that data that's collected by the sensors is typically used to um, either explain uh, a health phenomenon, um, influence, or uh, predict some sort of outcome. So I like to think about digital biomarkers as almost um, like a fingerprint in your digital data, right? So we put together um, an incredible number of features, you know, typically after the uh, the, the engineers have, have um uh, cleaned up the data and worked with the data. We're talking, you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of of features at any given second that we can look at, and we put together this puzzle um, and identify a, a fingerprint that tells us something about your health in that moment. Um, and in the case of Ray, we use that physiologic data to create digital biomarkers of stress and and craving. So, in effect, uh, although it's apples to oranges to some degree, it's when somebody who has diabetes wears a device in their arm or on their belly that sends messages to the app they're looking at biomarkers uh blood sugar etc in that type of thing so it's it's the same type of idea just separate biomarkers that you're looking for exactly yeah, yeah. so the, the i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead I was going to say the glucose is is would be more of like a traditional biomarker, right? And, it, and it's um it's it's in it that one feature is static form, and a digital biomarker is you know sampling it could be sampling fifty you know dozens of uh, features in that second, all from digital data. And this may not relate specifically to what you do, much more to the engineers. But if you can, I see a significant part of the work uh, on the development side is to develop and test algorithms that that really bring accurate outcomes. Uh, to the individual. Um, what were you looking to identify with the algorithm used in this technology? What are the, the things that you were measuring and looking at specifically? So, um, as I alluded to before, the two biobehavioral states that we're looking for, right, to define that digital biomarker are stress and craving. So, we define stress as um, uh, discomfort that you experience, uh, something that's threatening, challenging, or harmful, right? And we provide this date, this definition in the app so that people know mm -hmm. what we're asking. And then craving, we just define as a strong urge to use your drug of choice, right? Something that's distracting from, uh, from the, the rest of life in that moment. Um, and the perimeters we use to do that are um, a lot of the physiological perimeters that I mentioned that we measure, right? So we measure um, people's you know, movement, the, the speed and, and cadence of their movement and the direction and how uh, it changes over a period of time from their baseline. Um, we measure their heart rate and their heart rate variability. Um, we measure something called electrodermal activity, which is conductance at the surface of the skin. Uh, we've used in some algorithms skin temperature, which is, you know, ha has to do a lot with some, in some ways there's um, in temperature, but really we're, we're thinking about like, um, uh, you know, whether your, your veins are dilated, right? You have blood rush to your skin and your skin temperature is going up, et cetera. And all those, uh, those features can be used in aggregate. Um, the current algorithm that we have, uh, the baseline algorithm accuracy is about 70 to, to 75% accurate for craving and close to 80% for stress. Um, but obviously that's not 100%. And one of the most important reasons why is that because everybody is different, right? So there's, there's clearly... Um, we all share some uh, common physiology, but everyone responds. Everyone responds to things a little bit differently. Everyone's baseline is a little bit different, so it's not 
really a one size fits all um, uh, type of situation. So what we're doing with Ray now is we have this this core algorithm that works pretty well, um, but not perfectly. We're working to personalize the algorithm. So as you use Ray, um, one of the prompts that comes up when it when it detects stress or craving is that it asks you to uh, to confirm or deny, right? And to, to help us understand if this is true for you or not. And then the al- algorithm um, over time it can be become personalized and recalibrated. Um, and so ultimately, um, the same way that um, maybe your Apple Watch gets better at um, uh, at tracking your distance when you run over time as you use it, Ray will get better uh, and more accurate um, over time as the, the algorithm becomes more personalized. What I really found interesting in, in just what you were saying, and, and this is new to me as, as we talk, is when we look at things about cravings and then accuracy, um, one of the things that that really fascinates me are different theories of substance use disorders and things. And one of the the leading theor- additional theories outside the mainstream is that it, it's a normal attentional bias uh, or simulates a normal attentional bias in people that they have the, the te- individuals SUDs having a bias toward the substance. And it, it allows that person to determine, uh, you know, when you... The accuracy of the cravings is just spectacular. I think it, it allows that person to look at, at at what's going on and determine for themselves if it's a craving or if it's something else going on. But like you said, people are kind of geared differently. Um, some people may have more of a buy an intentional bias toward that and have different responses to the cravings. So just the fact that you can uh, work with the individual and all these different things can come up, I find really incredibly fascinating. And I'm glad you didn't just go out there and say like these others, oh, we're 99.9% on this. And the re- you know, the reality is there's always room to improve uh, as we move forward. Uh, are there specific substances uh, that the Ray system is looking for? Or is it, is it like a lot of the early technological stuff was only looking at alcohol level and stuff because it was easier to track. What about the Ray uh, system. So um, our initial validation studies were actually uh, in a variety of substance use disorders mm-hmm. um, and measured resultant cravings from those. So we included alcohol. Alcohol and opiates were by far the, the largest number in our sample, um, but we also included amphetamines, cocaine uh, use disorders as well. Um, but interestingly, it, we did specifically um, move away from the acute detox period. So I, I will say that I think craving is very different in the early withdrawal period because there's such a physiologic component to withdrawal. So I, I will make that caveat that I think, mm-hmm. you know, for example, in the early stages where people withdraw from alcohol versus opiates, things are going to look very, very differently. But but once you move out of that stage, um, uh, that's sort of where we've done a lot of our validation studies. Um, and if you listen to uh, many experts on craving, um, you know, many of them are of the opinion that um, strong cravings, whether they're for drugs or gambling or food and people who have, you know, eating disorders, et cetera, um, can essentially be created equal, again, aside from that, you know, substance specific withdrawal. And so um, we've actually uh, expanded and we're, we have studies um, ongoing to evaluate the the utility of these algorithms in non-drug cravings, you know, for example, food. Um, and then we'd like to, over time, as we accumulate more and more data, start to compare, right? Because I, I think it would be really interesting to see um, what the differences are and, and what the similarities are as well. And I think it's interesting because in early recovery, with somebody's more acute or post-acute withdrawal into that, uh, the neurological pathway is very strong. 
And then the further you move from that and you're able to change some thinking patterns and actually have, you know, uh, structural and process uh, procedural changes in the brain, we're going to see different looks um, on what those cravings are as, as they develop different neural pathways. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I think that, again, it's just incredibly fascinating. Um, one thing that's often missing in live in-person clinical work is the opportunity to track cravings because clients may not be able to identify something as a craving. Uh, they may identify the physiological response as something else or just don't necessarily know when they're in their moment what's going on. Um, so looking at these patterns, um, and you may have asked this, so forgive me, do individuals using that, they're able to go back and look at kind of track what's been happening and, and look for be, uh, for patterns and things uh, that they can apply to situations they were in? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a major goal of Ray. And I think that's one of the major ways that, um, that it can help people uh, change. It can help people become more self-aware. So um, in our early studies, what we, we found, uh, we learned a lot about how people do and don't want to use this, right? And what we found is that that immediate de-escalation tool, like components array, is really useful because it, it um, invokes even the act of identifying or decline or or or, or uh, not identifying a craving um, brought people a sense of mindfulness. And they reported this really organically on their own that they liked that idea that I have to think about, like, is this really stressful? Am I really craving? How strong is it? Um, and then, you know, that it, in turn, start thinking about what's going on. And so that in itself was sort of a, a bit of a, um, was a useful tool in, in a de-escalation strategy. Um, but we also recognize that cravings happen when you're driving and stressful situations happen when, you know, you're at work. And, and so not everyone can engage in, in all the, the great things we have at, at that moment. And so um, we want to make sure there, there's other utilities to this, but um, the retrospective review of data is is very powerful. It's a very powerful feature, and we've worked um, on the app, and we're continuing to revise the portal as well because um, giving people um, a, a list of, of of mishmash of data is not helpful, right? So we really uh, work hard to make it visually appealing, easy to look at, and you know, really kind of quickly at a glance, start understanding uh, trends in terms of both the timing of events, the intensity of events. Uh, there's a, a geolocation feature um, that we're building back in um, that will start to show the, the events in um, in physical space as well, right? So you can start to see uh, mm -hmm. where they occur. Um, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite stories from our, one of our original studies is, is a, a, a client or, or participant had a eureka moment uh, when they noticed that Ray was going off every time they pulled into a family, particular family member's driveway. Right. And they said, this is my trigger, right? Every time I pull in the, you know, the, 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 the bells are going off. And so, and then that, that sort of, I think prompted some reflection because that was one of that, that was their who, right? Like the person who, who's triggering some of those feelings. And so it prompted them to uh, talk with their treatment provider, but how, you know, how can we address this part of my recovery, right? Like, you know, family therapy or, or, or thinking about, you know, why this is happening and, you know, with that person and in that space. And so I think that's really powerful and it, it provides it, I think, um, not just for the user, but also hopefully so that they can use it as, in a discussion with their treatment provider and mm -hmm. then collaboratively think about what that means for them and, and their recovery and how, how they can tailor treatment to address those things. You know, it's easy to recognize, hey, it's 
it was just recently Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving may be a tough time for me to be around my family. I'm not mm -hmm. speaking for myself. I'm just speaking generally. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, saying that it's a tough, and people recognize that, but they may not recognize the particulars. When something's going on, like when I pull my car onto the highway, the driving stress creates cravings as well. So I think that's really important stuff to know that we often miss because we look for those big things. I like the fact that this can just provide the data back and let that, again, let the individual take a look at it and determine what it means for them or what they need to do. Um, it may be too soon to ask this question, um, but is there any data on outcomes uh, using the app for someone actively in treatment versus somebody not in treatment? That's a great question. Um, to date, we've only studied the app in people who are actively engaged in some form of treatment. Um, we've enrolled people um, in intensive IOP programs, in medication-assisted programs, so we're living like a variety of even 12-step programs were, were fine. But um, we felt um, pretty strongly that this is a tool that's very, that would be most useful for someone who's already engaged in, in other forms of, of treatment, right? I think it would be, it's not that someone who who wasn't pursuing treatment couldn't use it, um, but I think it's I think it's just one tool. And in, in, um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate for someone to use this in place of you know a good treatment provider and therapy and things like that. Um, our initial studies looked at largely usability and accuracy, so we spent a lot of time redesigning the app to make it usable. Uh, easy to make it something that people enjoy looking at and using, and then also refining the those algorithms to make them as accurate as possible. Um, we currently have a clinical trial underway that's that's funded by the NIH um, that's going to be a randomized control trial. And this is to determine um, how rate impacts key outcomes in treatment. Um, so when people use rate compared to a, 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 a control group of people who just use a, a uh, fitness tracker, for example, no yeah. app, right? No, no race system. Um, and we're going to look at clinical outcomes like retention and treatment and return to use. We're looking at psychosocial outcomes, uh, you know, like, you know, depression and anxiety scores and, and quality of life. Um, and then we're also looking at healthcare utilization, right? Like how many times people have to, you know, go back to, to, to non-scheduled treatment, like the emergency department hospital and things like that. Um, so that's to be continued. That's a big trial. We're going to enroll 300 subjects nationwide, um, hopefully over the next two years. And I know that one of the things that, it, from listening that could happen is this could increase, I hate to say treatment compliance, but uh, client views of treatment because it can really help them drive their own specific treatment plan. When they're noticing something like the situation you spoke of in a family member's driveway, hey, that's something I really need to addr address. The clinician may not have that knowledge, may not be able to parse that out of somebody, but the app helps somebody recognize that. And I think that it's going to, client satisfaction and, and uh, engagement is really important. I think that engage, this could really help with the engagement piece. Yeah, I think our goal is to uh, promote collaboration and also self-sufficiency, right? We want people to, um, we want to help give people the tools to recognize this on their own and and to make their own decisions and um and and uh, be their own best advocate in their care right and um and we've really gotten we've gotten great feedback from um from people who've used it and and really like that that piece of it you know they sort of um i think felt empowered by having that data you know, we uh, you and I spoke briefly offline, kind of about some of the struggles that the the field and the industry have with change. Um, this is a change that, the, like you said, you're not it's not a one size fits all. You're not 
saying it's a standalone replacement for treatment, but it really helps collaborate well between regardless of where somebody's receiving services um, that it can benefit them in any way. I think that that's an interesting thing when we talk about change. It's you're integrating it into what people are already doing to help them improve what they're doing. Um, you know, it, we talked about the efficacy and, and some specific demographics a few weeks ago. Um, can you talk about who seems to do better with the support of this technology? So in our original trial, um, the, the people who did better, and by better in, the, in that particular case, I meant um, stayed engaged for the entire study period, right? Kept using the app, you know, used it the, the most hours of the day, the most days out of the, out of the, the period. Um, were people with uh, slightly higher digital literacy, right? They had a little bit more experience with technology. Although, ironically, they weren't the younger people. The older people actually did better. The 40-plus crowd did better, um, which was a little surprising. Um, patients who were from uh, generally like higher socioeconomic status groups tend to do a little bit better, I think largely because they had uh, higher quality phones and the app ran a little bit better in those cases. Um, and we also found patients that onboarded with a buddy. So either they had their treatment provider with them when they learned how to use the app, a partner, a family member, or a support person um, were more likely to stay engaged throughout the process. Um, and so as even though these, these are all great and interesting, we, we want to make sure that this is something that's available and usable for everyone. And so we've learned a lot from that and we've really redesigned the app to address some of those things. Um, one of them is that we built um, several in-app tutorials that are just they're just easy, right? They make it very easy to kind of show what the buttons do so that people don't feel overwhelmed or nervous because let's be honest, people who are in recovery have a lot going on in their life, right? We don't want to do something that's going to make their life harder or more stressful. Certainly, we don't want to make it more stressful. That would be unethical, right? Um, and so we we tried to make this as simple as possible. Um, we're also um, uh, exploring um, this idea of, of a buddy system being a really useful tool and helping keep people engaged. And so we're um, really digging into the peer recovery treatment model as a setting where Ray could be particularly beneficial. Um, we actually received a new NIH grant uh, just a few months ago um, where we developed a companion app to the original Ray. So this app is called Sea Health, um, and it's going to be specifically geared to link um, peer support recovery providers and their clients as a dyad in the app. And so the uh, the the person in recovery can gain all the benefits from the the physiologic you know tracking and the the uh analytics and sort of understanding uh and the peer can both support them in the app and then use them to to support their um their their role as a, as a recovery uh provider so so really excited about that we're also working with that project to um simplify our um our technology in some ways so that can run really seamlessly on really inexpensive cell phones because we know that a lot of uh, our, our folks in recovery um they may not have a fifteen hundred dollar iphone right they may have a, a much less expensive and less complex phone and so we want to make sure that the user experience extends uh, all across the board um and so those are just some of the changes that we've made uh in response to that I think from my perspective, that's a very important aspect of it because developing the technology for a very, for a smaller part of, of the population that can use it uh, is one thing, um, mm -hmm. but trying to make it accessible for all is another. Uh, I can see the value 
in, in peer support work. Um, as we move to more value-based care, we're gonna see shorter and shorter treatment stays. And let's face it, peer workers are the ones that are dealing with individuals in their own environment. And so the, the importance of that is already uh, skyrocketing. We're starting to recognize that because what happens in the community is more important. So uh, those are things that I find really, really uh, positive uh, about the, the system as we go forward. Um, where can people learn more about what's kind of what's going on there or contact you if you uh, if they had questions or wanted to uh, uh, just send their input to you? Where would that how could they do that? Absolutely. So um, so Ray Health's website is a great place to check out some of the, the kind of core features of the technology and the team. Uh, and their website is www.rayhealth. So it's R-A-E Health. Um, and that has, again, um, uh, information about the team and, and uh, how, to, how to contact people and, and the core um, product. And then I am always happy to, to talk to people um, either about the technology or about our studies. Um, and so people can reach out to me at any time via email. So my email, and I think we're going to include it in the, the notes for the podcast. Yep. Um, so it's stephanie.carrero. So it's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot c-a-r-r-e-i-r-o at gmail.com um and yeah i would be happy to to talk to anyone about how uh about, about ideas that they have or also how they'd like to get involved let's uh, i'll make sure that those are in the notes uh and before we finish up is there anything you'd like our audience to know yeah i guess um so the, the race system was built and is is consistent, continuously being revised based on crowdsourced feedback from uh, treatment providers and then people uh, in recovery uh, with lived experience with SUD. And we're so grateful uh, for the enthusiasm that the, the SUD treatment community has shown for this. Um, I know we talked about people not liking change mm -hmm. in general, um, but, but this community has been uh, overwhelmingly excited about this and supportive. Um, and we continue to to welcome feedback because we really want to design something uh, that serves the needs of of our um, target end users, right? So um, there's we have multiple ways for people, either individuals in recovery, um, treatment providers, or programs um, to try right to get involved in our studies. We have multiple studies recruiting people to try it out all the time. Um, so please uh, feel free to reach out if you're interested. Great, thank you very much. Uh... Dr. Curl, thanks again for spending the time with us uh, um, to expose us to kind of the, the new information and about the technology as we always want to improve the services that we provide and, and have better recovery management tools. Um, you can let your husband know I'm making a pot of caldo verde over the next couple of weeks <laughs> <laughs> with my grandmother, my grandmother's recipe. Um, and uh, again, thanks for appearing today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who listens. And we look forward to starting our fourth year of unique and thought-provoking conversations. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast applications. Until next time, everybody. Bye.